Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode, and I'm so glad you could join me today. The topic we're going to discuss today is really near and dear to my heart, both for personal and professional reasons. As a physician, this is really a tough conversation to have with families and parents when they're worried about their child's weight, how to feed them, and for our teens when they're worried about what they look like, dieting, and if they are meeting the quote, normal norms that they see put out there by diet culture. I started my own dieting at the age of nine and really didn't give that up until just a few years ago with the encouragement of my daughter, Julia. You might want to catch her episode that debuted with the onset of this podcast back in August of 2020 and take a listen to her perspective on disordered eating. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Emily Young, who is a registered dietitian, and she is dedicated to helping those in recovery. She has worked in both an intensive outpatient and a partial hospitalization setting where she has been able to support clients in recovery. Emily practices based on the philosophy that all foods fit and wants to help clients create a sustainable and joyful experience with food and movement. She specializes in binge eating disorder recovery and enjoys working with clients to establish peace with food. Emily is a fat positive and anti-diet dietitian working from a health at every size and intuitive eating model. Please join me in warmly welcoming Emily Young. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm doing well, Dr. Gugino. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, please call me Leah. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm delighted to have you today, and I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy woman. Well, let's just hop right in. Um, as I indicated on the introduction, you are a registered dietitian, and you've done a lot of work in the eating disorder realm. And tell us a little bit about your journey, and then how did you get into the whole field of eating disorders? Yeah, yeah, great question. I always you know, tell everyone I, I got into nutrition for seemingly a lot of unhealthy and disordered reasons, which I think a lot of dietitians might be able to relate to. I um, had really struggled with my own disordered eating since I was a young child and had gone through the nutrition program at my university thinking that, okay, I'm going to be a dietitian. I'm going to help people lose weight. I want to be the expert on weight loss and what quote health is, right? So I had gone through all that. I was going through my dietetic internship and I was feeling disheartened. I was feeling really disappointed, not necessarily with my education, but the fact that I felt we were really putting health and a lot of parameters and check boxes. And I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of it. This is, this is what nutrition is. You know, I was giving low fat diet recommend recommendations to somebody who had just had a triple bypass. And I was like, this just doesn't feel right to me. 
So fast forward to me completing my dietetic internship, I was applying for jobs, gearing up to take my RD exam, and was actually given the opportunity to interview at an eating disorder treatment facility, a partial hospitalization, an intensive outpatient program, and it worked out. I started, I knew nothing about eating disorders. I had no training in my undergraduate or internship, and the program director at the time like really took me under her wing taught me a lot. Uh, I started working with their binge eating disorder track, leading their binge eating disorder group, specifically seeing majority of those struggling with binge eating disorder. Um, And that's really where the journey began. You know, I had already kind of started my work learning about health at every size and intuitive eating. And what did that mean for me, even in my personal life, right? Before I even started working there and, and practicing with it, I was like, what does this mean for me? And fast forward, kind of getting into private practice later on. And that's just, that's kind of how I stumbled into this. And it, it's been, it's been wonderful and so, so rewarding. I think most women can relate to, I don't know, eating and weight and, you know, never being quite the right size, whether you're, you know, feel like you're too heavy or too thin or, you know, what, whatever the thing is, right? Yeah. Well. I just, I recently, a couple episodes prior to yours, interviewed an adolescent medicine um, physician who works in the eating disorder realm as well, and Dr. Michaela Voss, and she and I talked about eating disorder prevention, kind Mm -hmm. of on the front end, because we're pediatricians, and how primary care providers can offer helpful advice to families on nutrition, because you know, and exercise too, because we're sort of told to, you know, as anticipatory guidance, that's part of our job. Mm -hmm. So as a dietitian, because I think what, especially if we have kids that are falling in that high BMI that would fall into the range that we would diagnose as obese, we're thinking an option is to send them to a dietitian. So as a dietitian, what advice would you give pediatric clinicians? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think my my initial advice would be that we we've got to be screening, right, for eating disorders and disordered eating. I think any clinician, any setting, whether you're a dietitian, a therapist, a pediatrician, right, these are things that I think we we need to know, which kind of goes back to that education piece of like, okay, well, what were we taught in undergrad? What were we taught in med school, right? These are so rarely discussed, right? So I think we need to be screening for them, right? Did, is somebody falling off their growth curve, right? Is, are they talking about cutting out different food groups, right? And that also ties back to really thinking about like our own fat bias, right? And our own experiences, whether it's with diet culture, our own experience with weight, Sometimes we have to take a really hard look at ourselves and see where we're coming from and what our intentions are when we're giving these recommendations in terms of what's our intention here? What's really going to be the outcome? Do we have the resources and the research to really back this recommendation, right? You know, I, I think that so often these things really are, are not screened for. And when you're even referring to BMI, that really gives us such a limited parameter, right? And we know how flawed we know how flawed that system is, right? And so when you have somebody of, quote, normal or obese, 
or, you know, overweight, you know, what does that look like then? What does it look like when somebody with, you know, these BMIs come into our office and they sit down and they talk about dieting? You know, is that something we're encouraging because of this parameter, right? Do we only take harder looks at it when somebody is, quote, underweight? Right. So these are all things that I feel like we we really have to take a step back and assess like what we're doing and what our recommendations are. Yeah, it's interesting. You were talking about BMI because Dr. Voss and I talked quite a bit about that whole parameter and where it came from. And is it really helpful? And does weight equal health? So if I'm at a quote normal weight, which is at the 50th percentile in that bell curve, then that presumes that I am healthy. Well, that's not necessarily true. And by the same virtue, if I'm at the higher BMI, does it mean that I have disease? I think Mm -hmm. as physicians, we cling to the idea that obesity equals unhealthy equals I got to do something to prevent this. And, And I think that we get hung up in looking at it from that lens. Not to say that people are on the upper end of weight may have illnesses, but so may people on the lower end, right? Yeah. Yeah. As well. Right. Everyone, you know, we have to look at such a wide variety of factors here, right? We have to, we have to look at our genetics, our history, right? We have to look at what predispositions we may have, whether that's environmental, right? Socioeconomic status, right? All of these things that we have to take into consideration to even, even remotely try to define health, right? Quotations, health, right? And what that may look like for a specific person. And yeah, when we're using BMI, we're really subject to using these standard boxes and these check boxes for health. And I think that really results in cookie cutter recommendations and it's not individualized. Yeah, I think that that's really important. I think for any change habits to happen, if it's not individualized, you know, I mean, we've all done that. I mean, if you've ever been on a diet, it's not individualized. It's like eat X number of calories and this number of vegetables and this number of carbs or no carbs or what, or lots of, you know, protein, whatever it is, whatever the diet du jour. Well, talk a little bit about, you mentioned earlier, health at every size and intuitive eating and body acceptance. And for you and your role, what what does that look like? What's that mean? Yeah. So my work with, with the clients I work with, you know, from the health at every size and intuitive eating lens, we're really looking at our relationship with food movement and our body, right? You know, when I'm hearing people talk about good and bad foods, you know, quote, clean or unhealthy foods, right? When we start hearing these labels, right? Really digging into maybe, maybe where does that come from, right? How does that play out into our day-to-day life with our eating? So we're really taking a look at our relationship with food, which might be doing some, some digging of, you know, past experience with diets, weight cycling, right? Body image, it's, you know, body image is really grouped into that. And so we're really looking at behaviors and, you know, our lifestyles, right? Behaviors that might impact our health outside of weight, right? We're not using weight as a parameter to define whether we're quote healthy or unhealthy, right? We have to kind of, I tell my clients, I was like, we got to pan out, right? We have to look at the big picture here and really assess what's what's going on from there. So that's a little bit about what it, what it looks like in my role. And that might be, you know, 
more conversations about weight stigma, weight discrimination. Why does somebody want to lose weight? I have a lot of conversations about weight loss. And I, I tell my clients, you know, it's not my job to tell you that you can't want to lose weight or that you can't lose weight. You know, that's just something that we won't work on in this space. But I'm curious as to where that comes from. You know, does that come from your lived experience of, of discrimination or maybe a recommendation by another provider? And so there's kind of a lot of unpacking there. Yeah, I the more I've been in this space and, you know, I've, you know, dealt with my own disordered eating and dieting and all those all the things about body weight is that it's not really about food. It's about how food is used as emotional coping or if you have access to certain foods or not, if you live in food deserts. I mean, if you're eating what you can afford, it may look different than can I go to Whole Foods? And so there's a lot. And I think the other thing that Dr. Voss also mentioned is that, you know, and you alluded to it too, is that there are genetic predispositions. Some people are genetically predisposition to be on the higher end of the bell curve, some in the middle and some on the other side. That's what a bell curve is. It's not just one point, like everybody needs to weigh X. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, referencing to the inequality in, in our healthcare system and access to foods, right? And I think that also ties into these cookie cutter recommendations that not everyone has access to the same foods, one. And are these recommendations, you know, especially in my work as a dietitian, we really have to take a look at are these recommendations even appropriate? You know, are these things that people readily have available? Are, are they part of their culture and their heritage, right? is this appropriate recommendation for me to be giving, right? And I think when we actually take a look at that, most of the time it's not, right? When we look back at our education as a dietitian, it's not appropriate. Wow. I I struggle with this too, because it's just, especially if I'm talking to a family and they're all heavier, I'm, I'm struggling with, it almost feels like a judgment, you know, like, you folks are all in larger bodies. That's not okay. You don't want this for your child. How are you going to change everything so that your child can be in a smaller body? And presumably that means, quote, better. Well, let, let's talk about hunger from birth because, you know, this is where we are in the pediatric space. We're looking at development over time, advice over time. And so, you know, at birth, we talk about, you know, on-demand feedings, which means we feed the baby when they're hungry, not when we want them to eat. And I often tell parents, you know, you there are very there are a couple of things you can't make kids do. You can't make them eat. I mean, you could try and force it, but you can't regulate their own hunger and you can't make them sleep. And you can tell them to get in bed, but you can't force them to go to sleep. So then this sort of feeding struggle then morphs into food jags, which are pretty common in, you know, that two to four year old, you know, just when you get used to like, oh, they love sweet potatoes, then they don't want sweet potatoes anymore. And that's hard. Then there are food fights, picky eaters, bargaining. Kids may develop this fear of food, sort of this new term, AFRID, Mm -hmm. rewarding with food, celebrating with food. You know, what's a parent to do and and how do we help them with all that? Because that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, it's so hard. And as somebody who's, who's not a parent, I even have (laughs) my own challenges recommending this just because I don't have that lived experience. I don't 
know what it's like to have, you know, a kid, you know, kind of fighting with you over, over food or or trying to bargain with you. Right. So I I have a hard time, you know, and I'm very open with my, you know, working with my clients and the parents I work with. I'm like, look, like you are the expert of your home and your children, but here, here's my kind of general recommendation. And I think me and you had talked a little bit prior about the division of responsibility from Ellen Satter. And I find, those those guidelines like very gentle but also very appropriate right so when we're thinking about what the division of responsibility is right so essentially in a nutshell you as the parent or caregiver right providing the food setting up the structure around foods like okay it's breakfast time okay it's snack time right and plating their food and then letting them take over from there, right? So you even mentioned this innate ability we have to self-regulate, right? decide what foods we want or don't want, how much we need or don't need. Um, and I find it really interesting that that's so appropriate when we're infants and then all of a sudden things kind of change, right? Where we feel that kids should be eating a certain amount of food. They need to be eating this much variety. And I think all of that is true. And we have to trust them. And I know that that's probably really hard as a parent (laughs) to sit back and allow the kid to really guide themselves. So that's what the division of responsibility is in a nutshell, right? Of really allowing the child to pick and choose for themselves what they're going to eat and not eat. And, And like you said, food lags are very, very common, right? I hear a lot of times, you know, my child really only wants chicken nuggets right now or pizza right now, right? And and my response is like, that, that's okay, right? That's food, that's nourishment. And this may pass. You also mentioned food bargaining. And this is something I really try to work with parents on is to not set up a reward system around food, right? Because I think doing that from a really early age stems into more morality around food, right? Around like, if I eat this, then I'm good. If I don't eat this, then I'm bad, right? And so really working and and trying to move away from that, which I know can be really hard as a parent when you're just wanting your child to to eat and nourish and play and, you know, do all of those things. Yeah, I I think, you know, of course, as parent, I mean, and having been, I am a parent, (laughs) but, you know, we, we want our children to be healthy. We want to be giving them all the things that we believe that will nourish them in a healthy way. And so, you know, when I think when everybody thinks about that and, you know, quote, healthy eating is not like rocket science. I mean, it's fruits and vegetables. It is maybe dairy, depending on what you're feeling is about dairy. Um, Some people would say that's not, I mean, that's sort of changed over time. But I think that there's a lot of things. I don't think anybody would argue that fruits and vegetables are probably a good idea. You know, so I I think we can agree on that. How much, you know, if a kid's only eating peaches and won't eat carrots, well, are we going to force that? There are some kids that I think a particular group of kids where food is really tough and that's sort of sensory, or I think about kids with autism spectrum disorders. I mean, they may have very rigid rules and parameters around food and those are hard fights to win. Sometimes they're not a a winnable thing. You kind of got to pick your battles and roll with the punches. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that certain is, you know, I do work with clients with, with an ARFA diagnosis and it is more of that sensory textural aversions, which can ultimately lead to certainly malnutrition, you know, stunts in growth and development, things like that. And so that is, that is definitely different than what we would associate as kind of that normal pickiness and, and food lags. And when you're even talking about like fruits and vegetables, you know, I, I definitely think that variety is important. And if it comes, it comes and your child is going to still choose and pick what they want. And I think a part of that division of responsibility is making sure that your child has its preferred foods, right? So if the preferred food is chicken nuggets for the month or the week, then making sure they have that, or, you know, sometimes it's bread and butter, right? And then parents can slowly trickle in those, those new foods, right? And expose them to, okay, now we're having like chicken nuggets, broccoli and bread, whatever it might be, right? And then allowing them to really stem from that. And research shows that it takes about 15 to 30 tries or introductions of food for maybe a child to even pick it up and say like, okay, like I'm familiar with this now, so I'm okay trying it. Right. And I think that's important. I think we know that intuitively Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. it may take a while. I think as a parent, again, we get frustrated because there's so many messages to parents about whether you're a good parent or a bad parent, you know, that there's, there's a lot of shame around food, you know, this whole, this whole notion of clean, good, healthy versus bad, Mm -hmm. which usually, you know, equates to those things that a lot of us really find tasty, you know, whether it's, it's hard not to love things that have sugar, flour, and fat. I mean, it just is. I mean, I think that there are taste buds that that appeals to. I mean, maybe if you've never had it in your whole life, you wouldn't know, but I do think, you know, I wonder about, do we have an affinity just innately for things that taste sweet? I mean, breast milk's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, sweets and pastries and breads like that. They're delicious, right? Like we love them, you know, and I often find that in my work, I'm sometimes even when I'm talking to a parent, you know, cause what I, what I think it's, is important is sometimes these conversations don't necessarily need to be had like with the child. Right. And so as a provider, one of the things I'm initially asking myself when a parent or caregiver is maybe asking me questions about concerns around food and is this quote healthy or okay? You know, one thing I ask myself is, does this need to be addressed? Right. Is this actually a concern where we need to maybe intervene on actually what's happening? Right. And more often than not, sometimes we're having conversations, you know, as a dietitian with the parents themselves on their relationship with eating and maybe some of their anxiety around food and how that's impacting mealtime in their home or even their kids. Right. Right. And I had a conversation with an eating disorder um, recovery coach, Jane, who's a therapist also. And she talked a lot about one of the words of advice she felt was helpful is, you know, if there are these concerns about weight and food, that perhaps it's best to not have those conversations in front of kids, just exactly what you're saying. And I don't think most of us have thought that. I think we're sort of thinking that kids need to hear this is good, this is bad, as opposed to exploring what's really going on around food. Right, right. And I think that, you know, I often say that none of us are immune from diet culture, right? And the education and the messages out there. I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? And so when 
we have the desire as a provider and we're taught as a provider to talk about these things with children, right? I think we, we have to take that step back and really assess like, what is this going to do? What is the child actually going to hear and take away from this? Right. Cause you know, as a child, when I was a child, I, you know, I grew up in a larger body and I already knew that I was different. I already knew I looked different. I was already uncomfortable with my body. Right. And going to the pediatrician was kind of the icing on the cake for me. It was the validation I needed to hear that like something is quote wrong and we need to quote fix it. Right. And I think we, as maybe as a parent or as a provider, like we want the best, certainly hopefully for our patients. Right. And if we're taught that this is, you know, the best way, then we sometimes have that knee jerk response of like, okay, well, we need to do this and we need to fix this. And unfortunately, these are the parameters that we have been taught, whether in school or by diet culture. Well, and I think that's that whole kind of focus on health versus weight. And, you know, let's talk about how you move your body. Let's talk about, you know, do you you know, put water, you know, it's sort of, there was another program and I can't, I'm blanking on the name, but you know, the woman sort of talked about, you know, what are the things you need? Well, you need clean air to breathe. You need water to drink, you need fuel and you need movement. How you get those things and what you look like Mm -hmm. may vary a lot, depending on a lot of different things. And how do we give the message to kids about, you know, your bodies come in lots of different shapes and sizes Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's talk about how to keep yours running well, you know, or what it, it's a hard conversation. So, I mean, I think about, for example, let's say I have a 15 year old um, female patient and she's in a larger body and she wants to lose weight. How can I be most helpful to her? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned as a, as a dietitian is, is being a good listener. Right? And I think that that's something that all providers should practice is, is listening and remembering that our patients are the expert of their own body. Right. And like I said, validating, validating their desire to lose weight or change their body. Right. That oh, this, this probably comes from somewhere, you know, is your experience, you know, is, have you lived through discrimination or weight bias or has somebody else told you that maybe you need to change your body? And I think really validating that need because there is, there is discrimination and there is, you know, weight stigma is real. And so I think I tell clients, I'm like, it makes hundred percent sense that you feel that weight loss is the answer. So, so then what, so let's say you're a really good listener and you know, they talk about, you know, my friends are all skinny and I feel fat and I don't like my body. And, and they've, and you've kind of gone through, you know, that piece of the history. Yeah. What, what's the advice then that you give? Yeah. I feel like once, you know, we've screened for, you know, screening for an eating disorder within that, right. Once we hear that, then that would, you know, prompt us to do a screening, right. I think then we likely need to refer out, you know, I would recommend referring out to a health at every size dietitian, right. Or maybe even a therapist, right. That could be helpful in, in support of that to really maybe do a little bit digger deeping as to where this rooted in and, you know, how they can best support them. I think that, you know, I know you mentioned as a, a pediatrician kind of giving, that, that initial like education, right. And I think educating on, you know, how weight loss isn't actually maybe the healthiest route for us. And that, 
if you're looking at their growth charts, you know, if they're an adolescent and you're like, wow, I really think that your body is where it needs to be, then then giving that education, right? Maybe hearing it, you know, them hearing it from you would be really, really helpful. Well, I think particularly around puberty, and I think we focus a lot on girls, but I know that this is an issue for boys too, Mm -hmm. but you know, that this significant change in body fat and curves that you didn't have when you were eight and now your body's changing and it may keep changing. You're not done growing for, you know, this trajectory is like, you know, four to six years. So, you know, let's, let's talk about that. And I I worry about telling kids to where they are percentile wise, because the minute you say, well, your percentiles at the 95th percentile, and they're like, well, what does that mean? You know, now it's, I'm, I'm fat. That that's the message I take away. And then I don't feel good. Yeah. I think steering clear of numbers is really important, right? Not having, you know, like I said, doing the screening, you looking over the growth charts, you know, a pediatrician speaking to maybe parents about like what their eating environment is like. Do they have food rules or different food philosophies? Are parents following a specific diet? Right. And having that conversation one on one with them, but really not having those around, you know, the adolescent where, you know, they're starting to cling to numbers because they're going to take they're going to hear that. Right. Like you said, that that's going to stick with them. Yeah, I think, you know, having dieted for a gazillion years, I mean, I think about like the advice was twelve hundred calories a day. Well, it's no wonder you're hungry and thinking about food all the time because it's not enough. Yeah. To, to keep you nourished, right? Yeah, well, sure. I hear a lot of people, you know, friends, colleagues, parents, patients talk about the pandemic pounds, the pandemic mm-hmm. obesity epidemic. I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking if the worst thing that happens during the pandemic is you gain some weight, right? You know, is is that the worst thing in that world that happened? I mean, this has been a horrible year and a half. And, and if the last thing is that, you know, we were eating more because we're at home without much else to do, you know, so what, what do you think about the, the pandemic obesity problem? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought that in today. I think, gosh, that's something that, you know, the quote quarantine bodies is something that I've, I've been hearing for about a, a year and a half now, I guess, you know, being, being in this. And I agree that, you know, if, if the worst thing that's happened to us over this past year is that our body has changed, you know, although that that can be incredibly uncomfortable, right. And feel unsafe, right. That that is still, you know, relatively safe that, that we can be healthy. Right. And you're right. You know, we've, we've gone through so much, you know, I think I read somewhere that eating disorders have increased by 40% over the, you know, the pandemic year, year past year and a half. And, when we're talking about eating for comfort, right? Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And normalizing that it's okay to do that, that we're human. And it makes sense that we want to comfort ourselves and protect ourselves. And if that's in the form of food, that that's okay. Right. And a lot of times what we work on in, in my sessions, when we're talking about that piece of emotional eating, right, is Yes, we're eating and maybe we're craving a certain food and that's okay. I want you to have the foods that you're craving, right? And is that resolving what's going on, right? Is this eating stemming from anxiety, stress, depression, maybe just a hard day, right? 
And I really encourage my client to assess their needs in that moment, right? What do I need? Is it a hug? Is it a phone call? Is it still the piece of cake or whatever it is, right? Always encouraging them to, to have the food that they're wanting in the moment and also recognizing that, hey, this feels good in the moment and this is okay for me to have. I'm allowed to do this. And maybe I also need to think about like what emotions are coming up for me. And of course, with the pandemic year, like, gosh, like, there's so many things going on, so many emotions. Well, I think that kind of comes down to that intuitive eating and understanding food cues. Is it hunger? Is it boredom? I think there's mm-hmm. been a ton of boredom. Mm-hmm. Is wow. it sadness? I can't do the things I wanted to do. I can't see my friends. I mean, I think we've all struggled with that. And again, yeah. you hate to boil it down to now I have to be ashamed of the fact mm-hmm. that I gained weight during the pandemic and that equals I'm bad. Right. You know, I'm bad. This is bad. And I have to undo it because it's a terrible thing. And I mean, the pandemic has been a terrible thing. I, I think the fact that we've struggled with that and that it's been scary. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe eating a couple of cookies, you know, I, I again, is that the worst thing? Yeah. Well, Kind of on the flip side, when you're working with patients that have food restrictions, particularly, you know, anorexia, and you have to talk about food and structure because they have to eat. I mean, food is the 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 treatment, really. Before anything else, they have to restore their weight. What do you what's the approach with that when patients are afraid of gaining weight and yet, you know, their heart rate's 50 yeah, yeah. So, you know, food structure is something that, that we do talk a lot about, you know, whether it is anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, right? Like that restrictive component is, is typically there. And, you know, I don't, like I said, you know, there isn't a one size fit all, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll work from the structure of a meal plan. Sometimes we're just working off the structure of, okay, this is my work schedule. This is my weekend schedule. But really having to take a look at, are we eating enough? right? Is this nourishing our body? Is this meeting our energy needs, right? And sometimes, like I said, that is in the form of a meal plan where we have goals and, you know, they're working with a therapist and a recovery coach on exposures, right? And things like that. And really kind of boiling it down to the timing of meals, right? That's somehow, sometimes how it can look, right? Of, are we eating every three to four hours? And if we are, what are some options for us? So, Sometimes it's initially really helping a client figuring out their schedule, the timing of meals, and also what meals can actually look like and should look like for them. So even in terms of that structure, we're looking at portioning, right? And that's something that is often so skewed by by diet culture, you know, that we need maybe more carbohydrates and fat and protein, whatever it is that we were eating before. And, And what does that look like for you? I think the bottom line there is you said a whole lot of other people besides the pediatrician, the pediatric clinician, and that's Mm -hmm. a dietitian, that's a therapist, that may be a recovery coach. Mm -hmm. It's not just me alone saying, you know, oh my gosh, you need to eat this way because I'm not the best expert. What I think oftentimes the physician job is to monitor the health parameters, you know, Is, is the heart rate safe? Is the blood pressure okay? And ideally, we're able to refer them to an eating disorder specialist because it is tricky and it is, you know, an illness that is different than someone who's thin because you can be thin and not anorexic, right? Right. Absolutely. And I think, 
you know, referring back to the importance of having a team, right? Having these different pieces come together along with the client working together to really, you know, support recovery. And what does that look like? And absolutely the the pediatrician, physician are, are crucial in that medical, that medical composition and monitoring. And we rely as a dietitian, we rely heavily on, on pediatricians for that support and guidance and really that feedback, right? Because we're we're not doctors. Right. And so I think, you know, when I'm working with a client, really trying to get them to have that supportive team together, you know, having the dietitian and the therapist meet maybe weekly and, you know, the therapist or the physician as prescribed and having that recovery coach sometimes like having that 24 hour, you know, tech support or more meal exposures, right? Like that's all, it's such an integral part of recovery and a part of that structure even. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing. I mean, these are patients who are really ill and really need that sort of intensive support that we would give anyone with an illness and that was really struggling and, and tipping. And I think we have to be flexible in understanding that, but again, reaching out for help and talking to each other. When I, I think the biggest thing I've learned doing these podcasts for the past year is one that parents want us to listen and spend time with them that feels meaningful. It doesn't necessarily have to be a lot of time. They just want it to be quality time. And then the other is with those people that are taking care of my child. I really hope that they're all talking to each other, you know, because they don't want to hear I'm just, you know, talking. I, I don't know who's saying what. So in closing, what final advice would you have for those of us who care for kids? So in closing, what advice would you have for those of us who care for kids? I think, you know, like I said, one of the biggest things I think is is, is listening and remembering that everyone is the expert of, of their own body, right? I think choosing our words carefully, right, and reassessing our intentions and our own education and our beliefs around food specifically, I think it takes a lot of work and that's for all clinicians. And sometimes that's really continual work on our own and even in our own personal life and how we practice. Because if anything, we all know that that kids are sponges and they're going to listen. And something that you may say and forget about in the next five minutes is something that's going to stick with them for a really long time. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I hope that all the listeners that have been listening to this series on eating disorders, disordered eating, weight concerns, really stops and thinks, is this child that's in a larger body unhealthy or are they just in a larger body? And how can I best make this child thrive? How, and it's really not just my job. It's like, how can I support them? How can I help them so that when they leave my office, they feel good about who they are. And if they're having a hard time, they know I'm there to help them and that I care about them for who they are, regardless of whatever size they are. Yeah. And and I think along with that, it, you know, all of that in turn makes it a really safe space for them, which I think leads to better care, right, overall. It's interesting you say that about safe space. I just listen to, her name's Dr. Moira Salaji, and she does a lot of work on trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she really talked about in a podcast she did with the American Academy of Pediatrics was on creating safe spaces and having people that 
look like your patients, having offices being inviting so that maybe the images people see are images of people that are, you know, different color, different heights, different weights, different races, you know, displaying a rainbow flag. I mean, there was a lot of things that are messages that people see, just visual cues like, oh, this is okay. I'm I'm in this body and how I am, my pediatrician cares about me just the way I am. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think another thing that comes to mind when, when you say about making a safe space is really the information that, you know, like you were alluding to, like on the walls, information. And is there a lot of information out there about health at every size and intuitive eating? Are we promoting that and educating about that? And I really think that that could be something that maybe we have more signage of and and share more about with our patients. Yeah, I think that is going to harken back to our education and looking Mm -hmm. at our own feelings about fat and weight and all those things that we have learned and have feelings about that, again, larger body equals not healthy. And and changing that is a big stretch for a lot of us. Huge stretch. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope that in listening that, you know, if nothing else, people sort of sit back and think, huh, how, how am I coming across? Are the words that I'm using making someone feel sad or bad about themselves? Does this feel shaming? Because no one wants to do that. I mean, none of us who care for kids want anyone to leave feeling shame for who they are. So I I think your your words are well taken. And I, I really appreciate what you were saying about this sort of idea of autonomy that, you know, they are the experts of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think as we look at patient centered, family centered care, you know, who's at the center of that? It's the patient, not, not me dictating. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this has been great information and mm-hmm. it may be surprising to people some of the advice because it may not be what we learned, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, this is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about talking about. And I think there's, there's so much nuance here and there's so many layers to all of this that it, it's kind of hard to capture everything. But yeah, these are definitely, you know, just some of the places that I would start and start asking ourselves some of these questions. Absolutely agreed. A little self-examination is always helpful when we're trying to help when we think we're helping or not helping. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, have a good day. Thank you so much. You too. All right. Take care. I love this conversation so, so much. It really resonates with me and it feels like help and hope. So here are my takeaways. Number one, it is important that pediatric clinicians be aware of and screen for eating disorders. We have to pay attention to the growth chart because it can be helpful, especially when we're seeing big changes in, you know, drop-offs in weight or an unusual change in weight gain because sometimes there are factors that will affect that both ways. Number two, examine your own attitudes about weight, diet culture, and fat shaming. It may color how you approach talking about nutrition, weight, and BMI. I cannot express this enough. This is a really crucial part because I think we are fixated on the idea 
that children who live in heavier bodies, really anyone that lives in a heavy body, is not healthy. Number three, if you are concerned about a child's growth trajectory, consider talking about this with parents or caregivers, but not in front of the child or teen. And Jane Mattingly, our health recovery coach, talked about that in the previous episode. They may misconstrue your questions and concerns and believe that you are actually validating their fears about their weight and appearance. Number four, learn about health at every size and intuitive eating. Weight alone does not equal health status. Boom, period. Number five, know that children's food likes vary over time. And I think most pediatricians know this. You know, we talk about all the time food jags and picky eating, and those are really common. And it may take a child 15 to 30 tries to decide if they like a food. Our job as physicians and parents is to continue to recommend and to offer a variety of options of foods, not saying that this isn't frustrating, but avoid making the dinner table a war zone. Number six, consider that using BMI may be flawed. Number seven, when we are worried about a child, I'm sorry, number seven, when we are worried about a child in a larger body, we need to think about genetics, cultural beliefs and traditions around food, socioeconomic status and food insecurity, emotional meaning and use of food and trauma. It may not be at all about food, really. Number eight, we can offer parents a framework of the division of responsibility. That is, parents provide a variety of foods, structure mealtimes, and plating, and then it's up to the kids to take over, trust them, and help children become the experts about their own bodies and their own hunger cues. Number nine, avoid setting up rewards around food. Food should not be about morality, what's good or what's bad, or worse, I'm good because I didn't eat cake, or I'm bad because I ate chips. Number 10, when a patient wants to lose weight, the first step is to listen. Validate feelings of wanting to lose weight, and then explore the drivers. Is it diet culture? Maybe. What are the food messages from parents? Are are parents dieting? And consider a referral to a health at every size therapist or nutritionist because they may have that perspective of really digging in deeper as to what is driving the, the feelings and worries around food and weight. Number 11, for patients with anorexia, the intervention may be much more structured, but not a cookie cutter solution. On episode number 61, Dr. Voss talked about anorexia and refeeding as essential to recovery, where the food is the cure. This requires a tight team that includes the eating disorder physician, ideally having that specialist, the primary care physician, therapist, health coach, and a nutritionist. The physicians play a critical role monitoring vital signs, weight, medical concerns, and they must be part of the team. Number 12, we can be the antidote to diet culture by creating a safe space in our practices that welcomes all body types And we can reflect this in the materials we provide, the pictures we hang, and the messages we give. Number 13, our words matter immensely to our patients and families. Be kind and be mindful because our kids are listening. Thank you so much, and I hope that you found something helpful in today's conversation. I know I did. I appreciate everything you do. I know how hard you work, 
and really think about what kids need. And I appreciate that. Please stay tuned, and I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.